Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Higher Voltage Podcast, brought to you by eCity Interactive. Here's your host, Heather Dotchell. Hello, and welcome to Higher Voltage, a podcast that explores the ins and outs of higher education marketing and touches on all aspects of the business of higher education. My name is Heather Dotchell. You have most recently encountered me leading the marketing and communications teams at two Philadelphia area colleges. Welcome to Higher Voltage. I'm especially excited for this week's episode because we're talking about institutional magazines, which just so happened to be my path into the world of higher ed marketing and communications. Today's guest is a well-known leader in the field, Matt Jennings, editor-in-chief of Middlebury Magazine and editorial director for Middlebury College's communications office. In addition to running an award-winning publication, Matt regularly leads conference workshops, delivers keynote addresses, and gives webinars on editorial best practices. Plus, he serves the larger higher ed community through cases commissioned on communications and marketing and via American Society of Magazine Editors. But that isn't all. Matt, can you also explain the many hats you wear on Middlebury's campus alone? I'd be happy to, Heather, and, and thank you for um, for such a flattering introduction. I feel a bit of imposter syndrome uh, looking over my shoulder to see uh, who you were talking to, uh, but I appreciate it. I, I'm thrilled to be here. Um, this is an amazing, amazing podcast that I have listened to since its inception. Um, so I'm honored, honored to be be your guest. And yeah, you know, at, at a place like Middlebury, one of the things that, that I've loved about um, during the, the 18 years I've been here is the opportunity to, to do a lot of different things. Um, in addition to, to my official roles as, as editor of the magazine and editorial director in the communications office, I, I feel like lately, at least the past four or five years, uh, I'm probably most noted on campus for being the owner of Tom the dog, uh, Golden Doodle, who is a, a student favorite on campus, who shows up, uh, well, every day when, when we were going to the office, uh, he came to work with me every day. So people see me and and I think it's, there goes Tom and the person who, who walks with him. So that I feel like that's one of my, my major roles um, outside of the day-to-day work, but I've also been involved with a lot of different things um, from advising the, uh, the student newspaper in the past, to advising um, student multimedia productions, uh, independent projects. I've been a thesis advisor uh, for a, a student on her uh, long-form narrative journalism project. I've had the, the pleasure and, and immense privilege of, of co-directing a narrative journalism fellowship project with Sue Halpern, who is a, a scholar in residence at Middlebury and a staff writer at The New Yorker, uh, something we've done for the past 10 years. So. Um, there has been an opportunity to to really. I've had a radio show, uh, not right now in the moment, but but for about ten years, um, a radio show with a good friend of mine, a faculty member, and it's you know people. Some people have asked, well, is it a talk show, a journalism show? No, we we showed up and played music, um, which uh, it was kind of like arrested develop uh, development for me. I had a radio show in college, and to be able to do that as an adult uh, has just been a thrill. Um, and I've, uh, you know, just really uh, gotten to, you know, been part of you know, leading book clubs and reading clubs and, and things like that on our campus, a small campus, small residential college, uh, where there's the opportunity to, to really uh, expand and, and, and do a lot, uh, be involved in campus life beyond the, the um, you know, the, the regular work week. 
All right. Well, thank you for that. Um, and although our listeners can't see us talking, I did meet Tom, the dog, earlier, and he is very lovely. He's a sweet boy. <laughs> so when I reached out to Matt earlier this month, I wanted to talk shop, um, but I didn't know exactly what direction I wanted to take. Obviously, our podcasts so far have been heavily influenced by COVID, but that isn't always the lens we want, except when we do. Matt, based on conversations we've had before today, I know that navigating the pandemic is very top of mind, and Middlebury has had to make some tough choices. You've shared with me that Middlebury Magazine is suspended from its print version right now. Can you give us background on that and how you plan to weather the change? Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, you know, we're still in this this surreal, surreal world that kind of hit us, if not all at once, close to all at once back in March. Um, and, and, you know, I, I can even pinpoint the exact date, which was uh, a couple of days after my birthday is March 8th. And it was a couple of days after that um, when, when Middlebury College made the decision that, that we were going to send all our students home. Um, at, at first, the decision was we're going to start spring break a week early. Uh, and then after that, reevaluate. And then it became uh, the students will stay remote um, and we'll finish the semester in the academic year uh, learning remotely, teaching and learning remotely. Um, that had an immediate impact on our uh, Middlebury's budget, its operating budget, because once the students left in March, um, room and board for the rest of the year would be prorated. We were immediately looking at a, uh, a budget deficit. And we across the board uh every department was was asked how do you cut your budget by by x percent i can't remember the exact amount and we just knew at that moment in com conversation with my boss that the spring issue that we were working on in march we were about a month away from sending files to the printer that we would not be um publishing our, our spring issue in print and so we you know, you know metaphorically hit pause right then and there um and as the the months progressed and and we the institution began to make um further decisions institution-wide decisions that had budget implications everything from uh recognizing that we, we have graduate schools in the summer on campus and recognizing that we were not going to be bringing students uh to campus in the summer um which would mean uh more impact on the budget to a a fall semester um that that would look different than past semesters uh the the institution wisely and correctly in in my opinion um put a stake in the ground and said uh, you know as best as possible we want to maintain wage continuity uh for faculty and staff we want to uh support our students um and and whatever budget uh, implication there is, it should not be on the backs of faculty, staff, and students. So throughout uh, the pandemic, we have not resort, as an institution, we have not resort, uh, resorted to furloughs, we have not resorted to layoffs. Um, benefits have been have been uh, maintained and protected. So, so what that means is our operating budgets have been um, impacted, uh, in some cases, pretty severely. Um, those relating to student life, uh, not so much as, as it as it should be, or the academic side of the house. Um, there was obviously extra spending that needed to be done um, around COVID. And so, when we were looking at the FY21 
uh, budget for our office, my boss, David Gibson, and I sat down and, and we just said this pause is going to have to continue uh, into the ac academic year. Um, and so what does that mean? Um, and one of the things that I've emphasized with our constituents is that this is a pause. Um, we understand the value of a print magazine. Um, you know, Heather, you know, we, we've had many conversations in the past. I think people understand that I am a print evangelist. Um, I love the power of print. I think there is a place for it. In this case, though, uh, ink, paper, and, and postage, um, we can't afford it. Uh, if we are as an institution to hold firm to our values, which we are. So, so for me, uh, the challenge became, what do we do? How do we, how do we maintain this relationship with 50,000 readers? And that's basically our, our circulation. How do we maintain this relationship um, without that print vehicle? Um, we've had a, a, a quarter, we, we, Middlebury is published a quarterly magazine in some form, either as a magazine or it was called a bulletin at one point, it was called a newsletter, but it really was a magazine uh, since 1923. So um, without any interruption through through any other at any other time. So so what do we do um, to to maintain that that communication with our readers and, and, and that engagement and that especially at a time where everyone is feeling adrift, um, they're feeling unmoored. Um, so that became immediately in, in March became the, the challenge that was presented to me. Let's take a quick break to say that today's Higher Voltage podcast is brought to you by eCity Interactive. For more than 20 years, eCity has been creating marketing strategies, websites, and digital experiences for higher ed institutions, large and small, Inspired by challenge and proven by results, eCity can help you solve the greatest challenges facing your institution today. Let's talk about digital magazine strategy then. Many institutions, and Middlebury was also a leader in this, have had complementary digital presences to their print publications. Uh, what did that look like prior to COVID shaking up our higher ed world? That's a great, that's a great question. Um, I, I heard a podcast with, with Jeffrey Goldberg, who was the um, editor of The Atlantic, uh, used to be called The Atlantic Magazine, now it's just The Atlantic. And he was posed the same question. And, and let me just give the caveat, I'm not comparing myself to Jeffrey Goldberg or Middlebury Magazine to The Atlantic in, in any regard, but I liked what he had to say. And I thought it applied to us in a certain way, at least in the world of, of higher education magazines. And Goldberg had said that The Atlantic had a had a pre-existing condition when it came to their publishing strategy before COVID. And that was that they had a, a digital magazine or a digital experience that was complementary to the to the print, uh, to the monthly magazine, um, but was not a duplicate or a one-to-one -one match. I feel like we were in a similar place. Um, now we did not have and still do not have a, a digital experience that is exclusive to what we were doing in print. But what we had decided on several years ago uh, when we redesigned the digital magazine or, or you know, we're rethinking what the, what the digital experience should be for our, for our readers was we, we made two decisions. It was we were not gonna take everything that existed in the, the print magazine and put it online. We were only going to uh, put content online that we had a great digital strategy for. Um, if we felt like it, we could uh, deliver it digitally in a, in a 
terrific way, great. If we didn't have that solution, we were not going to try and, and um, uh, shoehorn it uh, into the online experience. So we had already had a, a digital magazine that was not a one-to-one match with print. Um, we also uh, went about the content design in a way that was not, again, was, was not like you were looking at, okay, this is what's in the print issue. Um, it was a design choice, a, a functionality choice that we said, if we are creating something for the online experience, let's tailor make it for the online experience. So you didn't go through the online magazine in the same way you would page through um, the digital mag, the, the print magazine with the front of the book, feature well back of the book. What was what's different than the Atlantic is that we don't have hundreds of people working on print and, and digital. So much of the content online still um, came from the print, um, still what were stories that appeared in print with the exception of some multimedia pieces that were created specifically for the magazine. But I still feel like, you know, 80% was, was content that had appeared in print that we were then repurposing for, for digital. So in that, in that regard, print, we were a print, print first, um, we had a print first strategy. Um, and when March hit, and we were not going to be producing something in print. I said, let's rip up what we were doing for, for the spring print magazine, A, because the world uh, was very different than what we had imagined back in February, January, December. And let's use this opportunity to think just about digital. And that includes what stories do we want to do right now and how do we want to present them? So we immediately became a, a digital first organization without that print. Um, and it, 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 it was great in that it allowed us to navigate a landscape that was changing every day from a from a story standpoint. Um, one of the things that I've said to to some folks is I can't imagine even if we had the budget for it, I can't imagine how we would produce a a, a relevant quarterly magazine right now because what we're working on now, by the time it would come out in print, could could seem woefully out of date. So one of the luxuries of working in the digital space at that time was. We could rethink the stories we wanted to tell and publish stories that were more relevant in real time. Now, not not news stories per se, but just essays or features that were more relevant to that time. And we can do it in a way that we recognized, hey, we're doing this for for the digital audience. And so that was the first, you know, the first hurdle to to get past was what do we want to produce um, and how will it appear? Uh, and then then the next big challenge was. How do we get people on board with this? How do we reach those those eyes and ears? So let's talk about what that strategy looks like now. You've taken a situation um, with budgetary constraints that arises from the pandemic, and you're looking at it, and not only are you saying this is the right decision to make because we need to prioritize our actual people needs on campus, but you're also reframing it, as you speak right now, very much as an opportunity um, to get these this timely, more environmentally relevant mm-hmm. publication out there. Um, So what does that strategy look like? I know when we've been exchanging uh, messages about this, you specifically called out engagement as a guiding force. Right. Yeah. So so one of the biggest things and and one of the many reasons why I love a 
print periodical um, is that if, if you are creating something that's that's worth reading and it's good, you have a great delivery vehicle because you're going into people's homes. Um, you're getting if if it's visually appealing, they'll keep it around. If it is well written and and provides uh, stories that people want to engage with, they will read it. They don't have to go find it. They don't have to find it on the newsstand. As long as they're going to their mailbox, they have it. So the biggest challenge we faced was we don't have that that uh, push strategy anymore. It's more I've heard uh, people describe it as push pull. So we're pushing the print magazine out, but we need to pull readers into our digital experience. We need to bring them to us. And and how do you do that? You know, as much as I, you know, uh, consume and and devour print periodicals. I also do online in a different way, but I very rarely type into a URL, www.newyorker.com. I'm not going to the New Yorker that way. I'm not going to the Atlantic or Sports Illustrated or or whatever. Um, I I need to be brought there. And and so I had been talking with David, uh, my boss, about a a magazine newsletter before uh, COVID, before the pandemic. Just saying that that you know there there are opportunities to reach readers beyond print. Um, if we are serious about beefing up digital, we need to find a way to bring them to us. Um, and and newsletters, you know, I, this is not an original idea. Uh, the, the past several years uh, have really taken hold um, in in the community of, of journalism. Um, every magazine seems to have a, a newsletter from the editor. Uh, now we're seeing journalists going out independently with Substack and creating their own newsletters. So, so you know, newsletters are the, the uh, 2020 version of what blogs were when, when blogs came out. And so we needed, I felt we needed to be in the newsletter game, again, pre-COVID. COVID happens and, and it's like, okay, we need to be in the newsletter game tomorrow. Uh, it's not something we want to do soon. It's something we need to do now because they're not getting that that spring issue. I mean, they're, they're th- they're, people are still thinking that issue is coming in April. It's not. So we need to communicate with people, A, to tell them about that. And we need to tell them, but we have this great content online. Come join us. So the, the original idea for a, a magazine newsletter was a monthly. Um, we decided at the outset it needed to be every other week. Um, so every two weeks there would be a newsletter. Um, and, and I was really intent on having a newsletter modeled after what I was reading. And, and so that was like the, the newsletter that David Remnick sends out from The New Yorker, Sam Sifton from The New York Times Cooking uh, Channel. That was very conversational. Uh, it was the voice not only of that publication, but of that editor in a way that I felt like I was getting an email from that person telling me, hey, you should read this, that, or the other if you have limited time, or you should try cooking this over the weekend if you have the time. So the the decision would be that it was not going to be a you know Middlebury magazine newsletter with a list of you know image and story, but it would rather be branded from the editor's desk, um, and it would be written as if I was writing each one each each reader personally, dear Middlebury magazine reader, um, signed by me at the end. Um, and I, I structured the the newsletter as kind of a lead paragraph. Here's the first thing I want you to know about, and just a little essence of storytelling in that graph of let me tell you a little story, and then here's what you read to learn more about it. Um, a second block would be letting people know what we are creating, because as we move to the digital uh, realm, we were no longer on a three-month cycle. Uh, of of publishing a print magazine. And I think that was a decision I wanted at the outset. It was even a, something that I wanted to gravitate to again before COVID, which was there is no reason 
to be beholden to a print editorial calendar with a digital realm. You just don't need to. You could publish all throughout if you have the bandwidth and the dedication to do that and you feel it's a priority. And so I wanted people to know that um, not, you know, we were going digital at this time, but that did not mean we were publishing stories in the spring and then you wouldn't hear from us again until we publish stories in the summer. Rather, we'd be publishing stories continuously, not every day because again, we're not Slate, we're not the New Yorker, um, but we would be, be publishing continuously. So the second block of that newsletter was what we're creating and let people know, hey, there's new content, go, go check it out. And then the third piece, which uh, I, I really like, um, probably the best of it all, and people have really gravitated toward, which it has nothing to do with Middlebury Magazine other than here are stories recommended by the magazine staff. And it, they, what it's called what we're reading and watching. And invariably, everything is Middlebury related. I'm letting people know about an alumna who now has a podcast with the Believer magazine, or I'm letting people know about the graduate of the Middlebury Institute um, of International Studies at Monterey who appeared on 60 Minutes, go watch this, or the faculty member who uh, has, has written this piece in The New Yorker, Sue Halpern wrote this, go read that. So it's recommended reads and watches involving Middlebury people, but nothing that we published. Um, I found that that's been one of the most popular uh, pieces. People are often referencing that uh, when when I hear get feedback from from folks. I've also gotten pitches. Hey, uh, I just uh, wrote this book. Can you mention in what you're you're watching and reading? So that's so I'm getting pitches for that particular area of a newsletter in the same way I get I used to get pitches for stories for the magazine. And I'll and I'll also say I I knew. Without looking at analytics, I knew that we were on the right track with that very first issue. We've done 12 or 13 now. Um, that very first issue from the editor's desk. When I got 75 responses, email responses, and they were all, dear Matt, Matt, hi, Matt. They were all writing me back personally. Now, the, the return address was me. But I, I knew it. I knew it was effective because they received it as a personal communication from me and they were responding in kind. And, and that was um, immediately gratifying and, and let me feel like, okay, we're on the right track with this. Oh, that's fantastic. Uh, can you share some of the analytics beyond, I mean, the, the time it takes for 75 people to sit down and write an email, I mean, that's the gold right there. Right. Um, but were your analytics also showing data support? Yeah, they, you know, so, you, you hear all kinds of things about best practices or, or, or kind of like what the key figures are for open rates for emails um, and, and click-through rates on, on various stories. Um, I've heard that anything over 25% open rate should be considered uh, a success um, for emails that have not been subscribed to. We're an opt-out. Uh, you know, it's opt-out. So we sent the we send the magazine to everyone we have the, the newsletter to everyone we have a valid email address for and they have they can unsubscribe, but it's not a subscribe base. So people have not opted in, they should opt out. So I've heard in with the opt-out model, anything over 25% open rate is good. Um, we've frequently been above 50. Uh, I don't think we've been below 40, maybe high. 30%. Um, some, and it depends a lot on what day and time we're getting it out. Um, but, but we've done, you know, really well, we think with the open rate and same with the, same with the click through rates. Um, we're seeing people clicking through on links 
um, you know, 25, 30, 35% uh, of all users are actually then following through to, to click through on a story um, in that first hour. And again, that's, that's immediate. And, you know, over time it, it does, it doesn't, you know, you, you do get the most traffic in that first hour when someone gets it, but it still ticks up over time. Um, so from an analytical standpoint, uh, I feel good about it. And then anecdotally, there are just little things when I hear someone saying, thank you so much for filling a void. Uh, thank you. You know, we understand what you're up against as an institution and thank you for still thinking of us and connecting us in this way with the life of, of middleware. You know, I couldn't script those better. Uh, there are people who, you know, still think, uh, or haven't read through all the way that, that the print magazine is paused and they're upset. Um, I actually, I like that they're upset when they think we're not printing it, printing ever again. And I, I reassure them that we will when it's fiscally uh, responsible to do so. Um, and they understand that, they get that. And even those you know, folks who can kind of grumble about what they're hearing from us, um, you're focusing too much on, on X, Y, or Z, they're still responding. And I, I, I think that's a, that's a great thing too. Yeah, I never minded letters to the editor of any tone when I was uh, handling magazines because if people took the time to respond, they're they were the best. taking the time to interact with what we were doing. That's absolute. That's absolutely right. So, who else is doing this kind of thing well? Where are you looking for inspiration and collaboration? You know, in in higher ed, Stanford is the gold standard as far as I'm I'm concerned from a digital. Uh, they've always had a good print magazine. Um, I know they agonized for about a decade. I've had often on conversations with with Kevin Cool at Stanford about what they should be doing in the digital space, and and they uh, they are doing things really well. I get it; it's Stanford, um, but we always should have places to aspire uh, to and and models. Um, they have a terrific. Uh, I, I believe they're still printing, but but they have a terrific digital presence. And again, they had that before COVID, so they were in a great spot to continue uh, outreach to people. You know, Loy st sticking with California, Loyola Marymount. Um, again, before COVID, all you know, with their digital periodical, they were one of the first to have podcasts. Um, they have had video. They've had behind the scenes. So they've been embracing what the possibilities behind digital. I, I've been kind of looking around at, at some of the other places, you know, the, those that, that frequently win awards um, for their print magazine, and they're doing, you know, visually impressive work digital, uh, digitally, you know, it's Wake Forest, that's uh, Oberlin, that is uh, Dartmouth. Um, but one of the things I'm not seeing outside of uh, Stanford is this kind of this approach of, hey, let's think about digitally differently, not just in how we can, um, you know, how a story is delivered um, in terms of what ask, what content assets you're bringing to it, but I, I haven't seen, and, and maybe I'm just off base, maybe I'm going down the wrong road, but I haven't seen anyone saying, you know what, let's, let's go um, create a digital publication that has this digital first strategy. And then, and, and this is where we're going. I know when print comes back and I, I you know, I can't say, whether it's this spring, this summer, next fall, but I know print will come back for Middlebury. When it does, I do not expect our print magazine to look exactly like it did um, and, and to exist the way it did with the last issue we printed, which was last winter. Um, I don't, you know, there, there are several variables we control, which is frequency, we're quarterly. There is circulation size, which is about 50,000. Um, and we're 96 
page. It's a significant book, 96-page magazine. When we come back, I, I think we need to maintain the quarterly presence. I would love to keep the circulation, but maybe it's not as, as big a book. And maybe our approach to content is different because we're publishing digitally first. And then what we're doing in print is a curation of that digital for print. So it, we're flipping things on its head. And it's not that I expect the primacy of print to fade. I still think that a vast majority of our readers will say, I want print first and foremost, and I will engage with digital. But I think the way we approach content will be different in that we will there will be an intentionality about what's created digitally and what's created in print. I see Stanford doing that. I haven't seen a lot of others uh, doing that in the same way. And again, I could be an outlier and way off base and, you know, and, and everyone else is on the right path. But I think one of the things that this pandemic has shown us is we need to be nimble. We need to think intentionally about how we reach our audience and we need to make the most of our resources. Um, I feel that the timing of, of me talking to you is fortuitous from my standpoint, because I, I was having a conversation with some folks in the office via Zoom uh, about we've turned the corner from where we were in the spring, which was, okay, what do we do? How do we maintain engagement? How do we um, make the digital experience more robust? You know, one of the channels we created was this channel called Dispatches that had no connection to the print magazine and wouldn't if we started the print magazine back today. It is dis, uh, distinctly for the digital realm. And it's these quick hit stories that we're delivering at least once a week or a couple times a week. But we've gotten past that point of the treading water, I think, and tread, you know, sometimes treading water with waves crashing over you. It's hard to think about actually moving forward. But I think we're just now at the point, and I was talking with, with folks about, okay, come January, where do we want to be with our digital strategy? How are we even, you know, we're no longer treading water. We're being more intentional about what we're creating online. And I want that to then lead into, okay, let's start thinking about print. You know, what, what does print, how does print exist in this ecosystem uh, along with this, with this digital experience that we have? And, you know, I, I could be naive on this and, and, you know, I could have people, Matt, people say, Matt, you're crazy of the same amount of people talking about doing twice the amount of work. I can see how that could appear, but I'm hoping it's not. I'm, I'm hoping it just becomes more intuitive for us and that we are building two kind of first in class uh, experiences, but I think we need to, you know, without uh, the the fiscal budget uh, to to do something in print, you know, we can't afford paper, uh, we can't afford postage, and we can't afford ink right now. But I I do have a a modest uh, budget for creative, and we should really embrace that and figure out, okay, how do we how do we build this first in class digital experience and bring people to it and have them engaged and then figure out what that means for print afterwards. Well, perfect. That seems like the, uh, the most excellent coda for this discussion as we come back around to print to the end. Right. I um, do want to say what, one last thing, a, a, a hero of mine, um, and you might have heard Jackie, Jackie Banaszinski either speak in person at, at conferences or she also does a lot of web webinars. Um, she won a Pulitzer Prize uh, for reporting uh, back in the 80s uh, at the paper in, in Minneapolis, but um, then became an editor, uh, an amazing editor, an amazing editorial coach and story coach. She taught forever. I heard her speak. You know, someone asked her, and she had the perfect answer for, for someone saying, is print dying? 
this was a decade ago. And, you know, we've been hearing about the death of print forever. Certain type, yeah, <laughs> certain types of, of, you know, I wouldn't want to be publishing a weekly magazine in print right now. Um, I think quarterlies will be fine. Uh, but but she said what's what, what the more salient question is is storytelling and that's what people really engage with and and it's the stories not so much how they're delivered and and yes print is a technology I want to tell people that as much as a a tablet is so is your printed magazine and it's a technology we should use but it's 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 still a delivery vehicle for a story and and Jackie had this line that's that stuck with me and she said. Uh, as humans, we have been telling stories since we first started sketching on on the sides of caves, and we'll still be telling stories when we're riding on the stars. And I, I thought that was perfect. And that's something I kind of hold close to my heart um, when I have existential angst about my career and and uh, what if my son wanted to do what I do. Um, and I just kind of say, you know what, if that's what you want to do, learn how to tell stories and be a storyteller because everyone's going to need that. Thank you for that. All right. So we like to end each podcast with a little something else, um, whether it is a complete 180 from our topic or something related. What I'd like to talk about with you is your side gig at Middlebury as an official announcer and the responsibilities that come along with being a known voice. Yeah. So, so thanks. You know, there, there, just as I, I mentioned earlier, there's some people who know me only as, as the human that accompanies Tom, the golden doodle. I, I know that there are people in the community who think my job and the only job I, I do and have is as uh, the public address voice at Middlebury sporting events. Um, they know me that way. And they're actually surprised when they, they learn that, that I edit a magazine and, and do other things. Um, so when I came to, to Middlebury, 18 years ago, I, I was coming from working at an independent school, um, K through 12 in Washington, DC. And one of the, again, one of the great things about that environment, in addition to communications work and editing and editing a magazine is um, I coached uh, high school sports. I was a JV basketball coach um, for this high school team. And I was a assistant um, for the varsity lacrosse team. Um, I knew coming to Middlebury, my, my coaching days at least you know, at, at a level beyond kind of rec sports for my son was over, but I wanted to be involved in, in athletics in some way. And so I was just, you know, kind of, I would hang around the gym and I would talk to coaches and go to, go to all the games. And there was one day where the, the person who was supposed to be doing the public address announcing for a lacrosse, men's lacrosse game couldn't be there. And so in a pinch, the, the head coach said, Matt, you, you know lacrosse, right? And I've, you, I've heard you on radio. Your voice is pretty good. Would you want to do the public address announcing? So I said, sure. And and so I I, I did that game. I loved it uh, as a way to kind of see the game, if actively, if not as a coach, more than as a spectator. Um, so I started with, with lacrosse. Uh, but then I, I soon had conversations uh, with someone who is both uh, near and dear to me and to you, and that that's your uncle, uh, Jeff Brown, the, the men's basketball coach at Middlebury. Um, Jeff knew at the outset that basketball was my uh, first love. Um, I, I I probably talked to him way too much uh, the first time I met him about players I had coached against at the high school level who he had coached against um, at Middlebury who were at other NESCAC schools. And I had said to Jeff, there was a great student at the time um, who was an announcer. He sound, sounded just like the the professional PA guy for the LA Lakers, uh, just really great. But I knew he was going to graduate. He was a student. So I said, Jeff, I have no intention of, of supplanting who you have, but I would love to kind of 
look into that role if and when it becomes available. He knew I did lacrosse games. And so he said, sure. And there were a couple of times where, where this kid um, couldn't be at games. And so I kind of filled in for him. Uh, I guess I did well enough that, that after he graduated, Jeff said, would you like to do this permanently? I couldn't have said yes fast enough. You know, I, I tell your uncle, uh, he has given me the best seat in the house, which is courtside, um, but without any of the stress and responsibilities of actually coaching like I used to do. Um, <laughs> a side benefit, I think, for him and those around me, I can be a pretty vocal fan. And I think by putting me behind the mic, I could put my enthusiasm into something professional as opposed to something that could be seen as profane or uh, directed toward <laughs> referees, which... Uh, Jeff has said the best thing he ever did was uh, to protect the refs was putting me uh, behind the mic because I could not yell at them as a public address announcer. Um, <laughs> but it's it's been a great way also to, to be involved with the students. Um, and, and I had missed that, missed coaching student athletes. And, and I've gotten to, you know, they embraced me and, and, and others as part of the program. And a lot of it was my son, John. Um, he was kind of around since he was two years old doling out high fives before the games. Uh, and, and the past several years, he's been an official ball boy for the team. And so they, they've they been kind enough, the coaches, the, the student athletes, and the parents of the student athletes to kind of welcome us into that fold. Um, I have very good friends now of, of parents of now Middlebury alumni. Uh, their kids graduated 10 years ago, but I'm still texting with the dads during games because they're still watching games. And we've gone to the weddings now of players who, who graduated that I never would have imagined doing that uh, because I'm not their coach. I'm not, you know, I, I'm this guy, but we've gotten to know them because they've kind of pulled us into the, uh, into the family. And, and that's been really special. Um, and I, I give all credit to your uncle for, for doing that. You know, I walked into this place, not, I don't want this to sound like, Oh, I'm famous, but I, I, uh, I walked into this, this deli in town that I don't go to all that often. And I went in and the guy behind me, when I said what I had, he goes, you, I know you, you're, you're the, you're, you're welcome to Pepin gymnasium. And, and I started to laugh and I was like, I, I can't believe I'm getting recognized for that, but it's true. And then we kind of lamented that there aren't games to call now. And so I, I do, I feel a little unmoored that during the, the academic year, I'm doing games for the soccer program uh, in the fall, the winter, the basketball program in winter and lacrosse in spring. And that's just not, not happening. I'm sad about it. Not nearly as sad as I am for the, the student athletes themselves and the, the coaches themselves. Um, but it's definitely been one of the highlights of, of my time here. Can we get an official voice? Welcome uh, to the Higher Voltage <laughs> Podcast. Uh, sure. Uh, I'm a little out of practice, but, but, but let me think. Uh, let me see here. Um, hi, everybody, and welcome to the Higher Voltage Podcast brought to you by eCity Interactive. Here's your host, Heather Dotchell. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you for playing along. Yeah, of course. Matt, before we go, can you let our audience know where to find you online? Absolutely. Please uh, check us out. The, the magazine website is um, www.middlebury.magazine.com. Uh, that will take you directly to us. We also have a, a Twitter account at Middlebury Mag. I also have a Twitter account, though I'm not sure you want me given out my own, it's uh, but it's at MV Jennings. I, I do talk about magazines and editorial best practices, but every once in a while I steer off into commentary about University of Virginia Athletics. So, so uh, bear with me on that. And then the, uh, I'll just, I, I wanna plug our 
the institutional social media, the Instagram account at Middlebury, um, which uh, does a lot with our digital content as well as everything having to do with life at Middlebury and Middlebury College. All right, fantastic, that's a wrap. We're very grateful to Matt for taking his time today to join us, and we're looking forward to more great conversations with higher ed thought leaders in the weeks and months to come. If you'd like to explore our topic further, please feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at hdotchel.